If you enjoy music's greatest mysteries, you're going to love Dan Rather's The Big Interview. That guy really digs into the truth. Check out his podcast sometime. Music's Greatest Mysteries brings to life the wild legends of our favorite artists. On this episode, the bizarre journey of Graham Parsons' dead body. Then, are Prince and Michael Jackson's chart-topping careers fueled by a vicious rivalry? And finally, the unintentional result of the music's parental advisory labels. The PMRC, it sounds kind of dastardly even now. Legends are often woven from the weirdest cloth of rumor, hearsay, and exaggeration. Then there's the real thing. Truth, stranger than fiction. Such is the life, and especially the death, of Graham Parsons. Graham Parsons' death is the craziest situation you could ever imagine. It is absolutely insane. Graham Parsons was a rich, boarding school, preppy kid who went to Harvard. He was a trust fund kid, very wealthy family. And when he turned 21, he was getting $333,000 a year. But he didn't have the vibe of wealth at all. He was a hippie-hearted guy. He labeled his style cosmic American music. No one had ever heard anybody make music like that before. The way Graham Parsons attacked rock and roll music and attacked country music was just unique. He looked great, he was tall, he was dynamic, you know, and then he had like all the right connections. He had one foot in country, one foot in rock and roll. He kind of had that swagger to him. He hung out with the Rolling Stones, him and Keith Richards were friends. You know, he was kind of like the rock star that country didn't know that it really needed. Yes, he made some great records, but it's the people that he ushered in, the Emmy Lou Harris's, Ricky Skaggs, and Rodney Crowell, and some of the other people. The influence that he had was far more important than any of the music he actually made. He was a pioneer. He influenced so many bands. You know, the Grateful Dead did a country album. And there would be no Eagles without Graham Parsons. Nobody really understands just how hard it is to do that and what kind of talent it takes to be truly unique. By 1973, Graham Parsons is already on the verge of superstardom. He's already played with the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers and has released his debut solo album, GP. He is pushing the boundaries of creativity with his music and his lifestyle. They were definitely doing a lot more LSD than most country singers were doing in the early 70s. He was the product of the times. You know, the experimentation was wild, and people popped whatever somebody handed them. And I think it's just a matter of going with the flow. And that's kind of what that time, that era was about. What Graham had done was uh, incredible. He certainly had the talent. Uh, he just had a drug problem. He came from two addicted parents, and with the combination of the money and the addictive personality, it was a lethal combo. You know, created a terrible storm. Like many of his peer artists, 
Graham Parsons falls victim to his demons. A mix of morphine and alcohol causes an overdose. And Graham Parsons is dead at the age of 26. Right on the brink of stardom, you have somebody that is right there on the cusp of something great. And they pass. But Graham Parsons' passing unveils a stunning arrangement, a pact the singer made with his road manager, Phil Kaufman, that would make his death as memorable as his life. Phil Kaufman, he called himself the road mangler. He had a real friendship with uh, Graham, who trusted him to do what it was that he wanted. Graham Parsons says, hey, if this happens and I die, here's what I want to have happen no matter what anybody says, and you make it happen. And that's what Phil Kaufman did. When we return to music's greatest mysteries, we'll witness a strange promise between friends taken to the wildest of extremes. Yes, the pact was real when he died. I knew what I was doing. I had to go way into the desert, a place called Joshua Tree. And later, we'll explore the rivalry between Michael Jackson and Prince. Oh, there was definitely a spirit of competition between these two, to the point where it almost got nasty for Michael Jackson. After the untimely death of rock icon Graham Parsons, his road manager, Phil Kaufman, carries out a bizarre plan to fulfill a promise made to a fallen friend. So Graham Parsons goes to a funeral of a buddy of his, a musician, and they're at the funeral, and there is no music. It's somber. It's the worst day in the world. And Graham was there with Phil, and Phil and Graham made a pact. The pact was real. We were at the funeral, and after it was over, uh, Graham said, if anything happens to me, I want you to take me out to Joshua Tree and, you know, have a few beers and send me into the, into the atmosphere. So when he died, I knew what I was doing. One problem, Parsons' family is in a rush to bury his body in, of all places, Louisiana. Meanwhile, Graham's coffin waits just outside Los Angeles on a loading dock at Van Nuys Airport. Well, that's whenever Phil decides to honor his pact with Graham and steal the body and take it out to Joshua Tree. So Phil Kaufman and his assistant get a, like a Cadillac hearse or something. I called up one of the girls that was with him who happened to own a hearse. And the, the rest is history. They're gonna drive it to Graham Parsons' body. Convince the people there that they're the ones that are gonna take the body to Louisiana. They run out to the airport. Phil's very official because he's got all the documents. He's the guy, I mean, he's Graham's guy. We went out there, we had cowboy hats on and jackets. So he goes up and signs the papers to get the coffin, to get the body, signs, the name Jeremy Nobody, and took the body. 
And as I was signing Jerry Nobody, a cop car pulled up. I said, uh, what to do, what to do? So I signed the papers, I came out of the office, I said, okay, and they went, they bought it. And off we went. They take off, just the two of them out into the desert. Put the gasoline in, lit the match, and And the essence of Graham was going up in the air, and that was it. They kind of felt their obligation to their friend to do what they had to do, and um, I think Graham probably would have loved the whole idea. Another problem. As Parsons' dying wishes rise from the desert sand, nearby campers spot the fire and rush to douse the flames. Kaufman is caught, arrested, and given a 30-day suspended sentence. But down south in New Orleans... Graham Parsons' grandfather had this massive fortune from orange juice and grapefruit juice. His stepfather wanted his body buried in Louisiana because he thought it would give him the rights to Graham's inheritance. Napoleonic law says that he has to be interred or a resident of Louisiana. Graham's stepfather then flies to LA to grab Graham's remains and send it back to New Orleans so he can get the inheritance. The story is amazing. So all of this, moving his body from LA to Louisiana, which caused his friends to go and steal his body from the airport because they didn't want him to get buried in Louisiana, and then taking his burned remains and still burying them in Metairie, Louisiana, where the poor guy never lived. All of that was for nothing because of a misunderstanding of Louisiana law. In the end, Parsons' estate is awarded to his wife, Gretchen. His tombstone has become a popular destination for cosmic cowboys mourning another music icon gone too soon. Imagine two artists on parallel tracks to the top, jockeying for pop icon status. For Prince and Michael Jackson, that race to the top takes a fateful turn on a single night in Los Angeles when the rivalry elevates to a new level of intensity. Oh, there was definitely a spirit of competition between these two, to the point where it almost got nasty for Michael Jackson. It's August 20th, 1983, when the feud first simmers. A year earlier, Jackson's Thriller and Prince's 1999 had become musical and cultural touchstones, making them both international superstars. On this night, the two are among the audience at a James Brown concert in Los Angeles. The show is the brainchild of producer Danny O'Donovan. When I did the concert, I called Michael and I asked him, if he would like to come, because I knew James was one of his idols. And then literally the day before the concert, I get a phone call from Prince's office saying that Prince would love to come and see the concert. Prior to the show, and unaware that Prince is also in the house, 
Brown discusses with Jackson a plan to bring him on stage as a surprise to the audience. Let's give another standing ovation for a young man sitting behind you that you have no idea who's an audience. Michael Jackson! No Michael Jackson! Michael Jackson got up there, did the moonwalk, crushed it live. Michael does his thing, kind of just whips the crowd into a frenzy, just really takes it to another level. Towards the end, um, Michael whispers into James' ear, hey, Prince is here. You should invite him up on stage as well. Bring Prince up, and he goes, bring who? And he goes, bring Prince up on stage. So basically embarrasses him into coming up on stage and saying, hey, follow this. Prince's performance is a disaster. He tries to outdance the king of pop, but instead knocks over a prop lamppost and nearly crashes into the crowd. Prince is so embarrassed, he threatens legal action. I got a call on the following Monday morning from Prince's attorney, and he said, Danny, you don't have any rights to include Prince in your taping. But erasing a humiliating career moment is only the start of Prince's retaliation. This is embarrassing, especially if you're Prince. Prince was just so irritated and embarrassed by this, and I think ramped up his uh, animosity towards Michael Jackson. Rumor has it that Prince waited outside in a car and was really wanting to run over Michael Jackson as he left the venue that night. Next on Music's Greatest Mysteries, the rivalry heats up when the king of pop invites the prince of R&B to the largest collection of stars in music history and is rudely snubbed. Man, every other superstar on the planet is doing this. And Prince is like, I'm good. And later, What's the real story behind those parental advisory stickers in the 1980s? The PMRC, it sounds kind of dastardly even now. In 1983, Prince and Michael Jackson appear together at a James Brown tribute concert, the only known time that the two share a stage. The show is a total flop for Prince, and he feels set up. But does he actually threaten MJ with harm? It's rumored that he was kind of waiting around for Michael Jackson and was threatening to run him over. Thus begins a 25-year heated rivalry between the two greatest pop icons of their era. Two years later, Prince is flying high off the success of Purple Rain when Michael Jackson pins the Ethiopian relief song, We Are the World. Music's greatest singers are present, with one glaring omission. Every single artist that was in your record collection was on that record. Prince turned down that invitation to be in We Are the World because he really was particular about who he was seen with and who he would collaborate with, and he didn't want to be around a lot of these people. Michael Jackson, of course, being the biggest one there. In 1987, the rivalry intensifies when one of Jackson's signature songs nearly becomes a duet. But this historical collaboration does not happen. Is Prince still bitter about the James Brown show? Quincy Jones wanted Prince to work with Michael on Bad. But Prince, who was never worried about using a four-letter word in a song, 
thought that your butt is mine in the lyrics was embarrassingly lightweight and didn't want to do that. The story goes that Prince escalates the feud many more times, including gifting Michael Jackson a voodoo doll, trash talking during a heated ping pong game, and dissing Michael on the album Musicology. Prince even gets the last word at his own show in 2006. The rumor has it that Michael showed up, gave him a front row ticket, and just came out guns blazing. And Prince comes up in front of him, just gets his bass right in his face and slaps it. Whether Michael saw it as something that Prince was gunning for him or not, man will never know. But it's fun to think about. When you pit something like 1999 up against Thriller, and Thriller walks away with all the Grammys, well, what comes next? Purple Rain. And then following that up, Michael Jackson gives us Bad. And they just keep going album for album. Even if it wasn't in their conscious mind, we as fans are the ones that walk away the winners with these catalogs from two geniuses. Both Prince and Jackson have denied their rivalry was personal. But because of the duel raging on, the world is gifted with some of the greatest pop music of all time. Hollywood blacklists, book burnings, porno paintings, lyrics from the horns of hell. No matter the era, all our artists raise the bar and straddle the edge. But in 1985, future second lady Tipper Gore leads a conservative coalition named PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Center, which petitions the Senate for change. Their goal is to put official labels on supposed destructive music. But is this crusade destined to not only fail, but backfire? The PMRC sounds kind of dastardly even now. We are asking the recording industry to voluntarily assist parents who are concerned by placing a warning label on music products inappropriate for younger children due to explicit sexual or violent lyrics. I understand people wanting to protect their, their children, but being possessed by Satan via songs is not the way to go about protecting your children and thinking that's what's gonna happen. Labeling is little more than truth and packaging. By now, a time-honored principle in our free enterprise system. It's a total violation of, uh, you know, your First Amendment rights, your freedom of speech. The PMRC calls out a filthy 15, popular songs they insist young people should not be exposed to. These include Prince's Darling Nikki and Madonna's Dress You Up. But a Senate hearing on the controversy enables some of music's biggest names to fight back. My dad was one of the only people out there to try to stop uh, the censorship of records. And, um, you know, ultimately they wound up labeling everyone. The PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense which fails to deliver any real benefits to children, infringes the civil liberties of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years dealing with the interpretational and enforcemental problems inherent in the proposal's design. There were other people that shared his point of view. As the creator of Under the Blade, I can say categorically that the only sadomasochism, bondage, and rape in this song is in the mind of Ms. Gore. The PMRC and the music biz eventually reach compromise, agreeing to patch warning labels on explicit content. 
However, the results of this solution come to shock the very ladies so concerned about this music. They put parental advisory stickers on records, and it said parental advisory, explicit lyrics. So this actually made bands more popular. The quickest way to get a teenager to do something is to tell them not to do it. Take two live crew, right? Wasp back then. It got to the point where artists wanted you. They really wanted to get that sticker on their record because it made young people more inquisitive and go, wow, this looks bad. I'm, I'm, I gotta have this. So it had the exact opposite effect, kind of like prohibition. While several megastores ceased selling music with explicit lyrics, the parental advisory sticker becomes a badge of honor as some of its targeted performers score huge sales and rocket from obscurity to superstardom. Mysteries in music, sometimes negative, divisive, and potentially deadly, can unintentionally become positive. Graham Parsons rejecting tradition ending with a fiery send-off, a rivalry that pays off big for fans, and puritanical women making stars out of the unknown. Lucky for us, those contradictions are all part of music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend.